welcome to the Yale Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'll be speaking with Paul Starr, the author of Remedy and Reaction, The Peculiar American Struggle Over Healthcare Reform. Paul Starr is professor of sociology and public affairs at Princeton University and co-founder and co-editor of The American Prospect. His 1984 book, The Social Transformation of American Medicine, won the Pulitzer Prize for Nonfiction and the Bancroft Prize in American History. A senior advisor on health policy in the Clinton White House, he writes frequently on national politics. Professor Paul Starr, thanks so much for being on the Yale Press podcast today. I'm delighted to be here. There's a policy trap that's been set in U.S. health care. What is this policy trap you talk about? So the United States is uh, different from other countries in the world, not, not only because we have some 50 million people without health insurance, um, not only because we spend far more on health care than any other country, um, but also because we've been fighting about this issue for um, pretty much a, a century. And um, instead of subsiding, that conflict has become more acrimonious in recent decades. And uh, I argue in the book that uh, the United States got off the general track of development that other democracies followed with respect to health care in the first half of the 20th century. Um, and in the mid-20th century, we uh, ensnared ourselves in, 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 uh, in a trap, what I call a policy trap. And the, the idea is that we adopted a series of partial measures, the tax subsidy for employer-paid health insurance, um, the Medicare program, the VA hospitals, and so forth, a whole series of programs that address the needs of particular groups in the population. Um, and decade by decade, uh, the cost of the system increased, the system became more complicated, and yet because those programs tremendously enriched the healthcare industry, uh, because they satisfied a majority of the public and the best organized portions of the public, uh, and also because those programs often concealed the costs from the people who ultimately bore them, um, all that contributed to making it incredibly hard to change the system, created a tremendous amount of resistance um, uh, to uh, reform. And so every time uh, a remedy was proposed, there developed a reaction, hence the title of the book, Remedy and Reaction. Every solution became a problem. And we have followed a kind of uh, syndrome. There's been a, a political syndrome with healthcare reform. Um, people have stepped forward with proposals, often at the beginning of some period when reform is under consideration. The public opinion polls show a lot of approval, but as the debate goes on, as Congress considers the measures, the approval falls, people's anxieties rise, the opponents, of course, do all they can to make those anxieties rise, and we end up either not passing something at all, which was what happened in the early 1990s, or today, when we did pass le legislation, there's a substantial chance that it will be repealed. And so what we have is this persistent cycle of national frustration. Uh, the problems are getting worse. Most people recognize they're getting worse, and yet we cannot seem to deal with these issues on a basis that satisfies the country at large. It was a little puzzling to me why 
the Roosevelt administration, the Frank FDR in the 30s, a man in a presidency that really wanted to take on quite a few sacred cows in American American society, where there was banks, particularly Wall Street, and then dealing with the whole issue of, of ratcheting up government as a power in econo- American economic life didn't really get around addressing health care. I mean, did at any point Roosevelt thought, think about dealing with health care? It was just an issue that just never really appealed to him. It came up three times. Uh, and um, first in 1935, when, when the Committee on Economic Security recommended what became the Social Security legislation, and the committee originally was charged with considering health insurance and I think the members of the committee would have been delighted if health insurance had ultimately been part of the bill. But Roosevelt calculated that it was going to be difficult enough to pass Social Security. Uh, adding health insurance was going to arouse the opposition of the American Medical Association. And he worried that might just be the straw that broke the camel's back. He worried that might just be too much. So he said, OK, let's come back to that later. Then in 1938, three years later, the issue came up again. And again, the same dynamic unfolded. People in the Roosevelt administration would have very much liked to pass health insurance, but the AMA mobilized. Conservative members of Congress said, no way, and Roosevelt backed down. The third time came up in 1944, and this was right before Roosevelt died. He was at the time of his death, preparing a speech on national health insurance and planning to introduce a proposal. Um, uh, Some of the historians say that uh, Roosevelt wasn't personally enough concerned with health insurance. I think he made rational political calculations in 1935 and 38 about what he could get and what he couldn't get. And then death denied him his final opportunity to pass it. So I, I don't think Roosevelt was unconcerned about it. I think just um, uh, the facts got in the way. So what changed for President Johnson? I mean, I would assume the same forces that were at play as far as political calculus that Roosevelt was facing, there was still energy and political energy and moral energy against, against health care reform. What was President Johnson able to do differently than President Roosevelt? After the defeat of Truman's plan in the late 1940s, Truman took up where Roosevelt left off and Truman made the presentation of that plan for national health insurance but he lost in the early period of the Cold War when um, uh, it was easy to portray national health insurance as part of a socialist plot against America. Uh, uh, But then Truman's advisors said, look, why don't we – why don't we retreat a bit and just have a proposal for seniors, a universal health program for seniors. That came to be called Medicare and that became a central democratic proposal uh, for John F. Kennedy and then Lyndon Johnson. And When Lyndon Johnson won a landslide victory in 1964 over Barry Goldwater and Democrats had huge majorities in Congress in 1965, um, he was able to push Medicare through. But Um, The Medicare legislation that passed was a severely compromised bill and um, in retrospect, um, I don't think it was one of the great achievements that it is often made out to be and in particular, it made such enormous concessions to doctors and hospitals in the methods of payment that it set off a tremendous burst of inflation in healthcare spending and 
um, uh, raised the level of expenditures in the United States to a much greater level than in other countries. Now, later reforms uh, corrected some of the early problems with Medicare, but the program proved to be far more expensive than it was originally estimated at, uh, as going to cost. And instead of becoming a basis for universal health insurance, which is what the founders of Medicare really wanted, Medicare instead became a barrier to a universal program. It is, I think, in retrospect, a, an example of a tragically flawed compromise. So leading into the 2008 election, uh, there was a counterpoint on the Republican side regarding health care, and that was in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts with then-Governor Mitt Romney. Uh, it's very interesting to learn from your book that the individual mandate really started as a Republican or a conservative idea put forward by the Heritage Foundation, certainly not known as one of the more liberal think tanks in Washington. So since this is such an issue right now leading into the 2012 election, could you explain what it is about the idea of the individual mandate that back in 2005, 2006 appealed to the conservative politician? Well, here it's, I think, relevant to go back to the early 90s because that's when the proposal for an individual mandate first entered the national debate. And it entered the national debate in a Republican bill, a bill co-sponsored by Senator Robert Dole, the Republican minority leader in 1993. And the idea then was that the Republican individual mandate was a conservative alternative to the Democrats' mandate on employers to pay for health care. So uh, the emphasis from the Republican point of view was going to be on individual responsibility to pay for health care. And the, as you mentioned, the Conservative Heritage Foundation and others said this was the right way to go. This was the a way that emphasized personal responsibility. And that's the argument that Mitt Romney took up in Massachusetts, earlier in Massachusetts, under Governor Michael Dukakis, a Democratic governor. The strategy for universal coverage had emphasized an employer mandate. But again, Republicans said, no, 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 we must emphasize individual responsibility. And that was Romney's Republican alternative. And that's what he managed to get a Democratic legislature in Massachusetts to accept. Um, they had wanted an employer strategy. They gave up on it. They accepted uh, Romney's individual mandate along with the creation of what are now called health insurance exchanges. In Massachusetts, it's called the Health Connector. And um, the basic idea here is uh, provide subsidies for private insurance. That's what Republicans were always proposing as the alternative to government insurance plans proposed by Democrats. So private insurance chosen through an insurance exchange and a requirement for individuals to participate. That was the Republican approach. Romney passed it. Democrats said, hmm, well, if Republicans will agree to that, maybe we should propose that at the national level. There was some hope I think in 2007, that this could be a basis for bipartisan compromise, fat chance. What happened? Democrats proposed it. Republicans walked away from it. To what degree was uh, the package that President Obama structured based on the work that Governor Romney did in Massachusetts? Well, I think the fundamental architecture of the national bill is the same as the architecture of the Massachusetts bill. There are differences in detail. It's a, you know, between a federal law and a state law. But the basic architecture, by which I mean the insurance exchanges, the subsidies for private insurance, the individual mandate, and then below that, um, Medicaid for um, people in poverty, um, uh, that's, that's the basic design. And this is very different from what 
Democrats historically had wanted. Again, you go back to the early 20th century, you go back to Senator Kennedy's original proposals, they all emphasize a government insurance plan. Democrats moved away from that. Then, really, if you think about it this way, Nixon proposed the employer mandate as a conservative alternative in the early 1970s. Then Clinton said, okay, let's finance healthcare with an employer mandate. Republicans said, no, 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 employer mandate, that's, that's socialism. Instead, let's have an individual mandate. Democrats said, okay, okay, let's go along with the individual mandate. And then Republicans said, no, that's socialism, an individual mandate. So basically, Democrats have been accepting Republican ideas and Republicans have been walking away from those same ideas every time. Let's talk then about candidate Romney here in 2011. Obviously, he's not a big fan of the federal health care bill, uh, although, as we pointed out, it's somewhat pretty similar to what he did in Massachusetts. Why does candidate Romney seem to think that what he passed in Massachusetts will not or should not work on a federal level? I think if the Republican Party today were the Republican Party of 30 or 40 years ago, um, uh, Mitt Romney might be expressing a different view. But the Republican Party has moved to the right uh, the Tea Party influence is uh, very strong and they don't want any program whatsoever. It, it used to be that there was a consensus between Democrats and Republicans that we should have health insurance for everyone. That consensus no longer exists. Republicans are no longer proposing any way to uh, provide insurance coverage to the millions who don't have it. Uh, and um, that is that's a huge change in American politics. I think I think Mitt Romney's position reflects what has happened in the Republican Party. Um, frankly, he's changed a lot of his positions over the years on abortion, on gay marriage, you name it. Um, he's very flexible. Many politicians are very flexible. <laughs> <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to figure out when I listen to the debates, and I guess what I would like other people when they listen to the debates, where that line is for candidate Romney between what he thinks is proper for a state to do versus the federal government to do. And since we're all talking about the individual mandate, I don't know whether he's ever expressly talked about what happens when the federal government imposes an individual mandate, what it is about the federal government doing it that makes it wrong, but the state government doing it makes it okay. From a libertarian point of view, the individual mandate is just as much a problem if enacted at the state level as at the federal level. So I think you know, there's, uh, from, you know, from that philosophical standpoint, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. There is, however, a legal issue, a constitutional issue, which is the issue that the Supreme Court will address as to whether or not the individual mandate can be justified under um, the interstate commerce clause of the Constitution or the taxing power of Congress. Um, I think the bill could have been written unambiguously to bring the individual mandate under the taxing power of Congress. That's not what they did. They rested the authority on the Interstate Commerce Clause. The Supreme Court has limited the application of the Interstate Commerce Clause in two decisions in 1995 and 2000. I don't think those decisions directly apply to this case, but we will see. The court, I think, certainly has been moving in a conservative direction. Uh, it may well declare the mandate unconstitutional as it was written, and I think that will, in retrospect, be seen as one of the 
most catastrophic errors in 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 drafting legislation uh, that um, uh, that that any um, uh, Congress has made. Paul Starr, the author of Remedy and Reaction: The Peculiar American Struggle Over Healthcare Reform. Thank you so much for being on the Yale Press podcast today. Thank you, Chris. Remedy and Reaction: The Peculiar American Struggle Over Healthcare Reform is on sale now. For information on ordering printed books and ebook availability, visit yalebooks.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Yale Press, or on Twitter, where we are at Yale Press. Or you can read our blog at yalepress.wordpress.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this show on iTunes or any podcast aggregator. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Copyright 2011, Yale University Press. All rights reserved.